are listening to the MX Vice Insight Podcast, presented by Liat and Prox Racing Parts. One-on-one interviews with riders, team managers, and industry personalities. And now, as mentioned on the uh, newest podcast to the MX Vice platform, uh, we've got a one-on-one with Liat's athlete and marketing manager, uh, Dave King. The goal with these shows is to put a spotlight on people who have otherwise just faded into the background in the past. Europe doesn't expose these type of people. So that's what we're doing here today with Dave King. Uh, what's happening, Dave? How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you, Lewis? I'm great. Are you nervous on a scale of 1 to 10? Uh, a little bit, to be honest. Because as, as I said, po- you don't, people don't interview people like you in Europe. It just doesn't happen. So here uh, we are. I guess I'd ask you, what's it like to take my podcast virginity? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so how are things at Liat at the moment? Obviously, well, we're deep in COVID now. This isn't a new thing. We're a year in, but is there still some effect at Liat? Is it slowed down still or is it kind of found a new normal? No, it's, um, I have to say the year has been, been very good. Um, I guess there's a number of factors. Uh, I think back when lockdown one happened, Initially, we were like, oh, you know, how is, how is this going to affect business? Because people can't ride their bikes, um, the shops are closed, but obviously online sales um, increased massively. And it seemed that for some reason, whether it be that people weren't spending the money on leisure, they weren't flying on holidays, that they seemed to be still not only buying hard parts for their bikes, which obviously isn't our business, but they were still buying helmets, boots, and gear and protection. So it's, it's been a surprisingly good year, and, and uh, we're hoping it continues for, for 2021-22. Well, this is something I've been wondering, because all I've heard from American companies, American businesses, is that they can't keep products in stock, like hard parts, gear, and bikes even. Like, America just mm. can't handle the demand now. Like, if there's one good thing to come from this mess, which I probably shouldn't say, it's that in America, at least, the industry has just boomed. Is it similar in Europe? Like, I guess in Europe, you can't just go riding in the desert or go free riding like they can in America. So that's different. But have you, has this been good in a way from what you've seen? Yeah, it it has surprisingly good. Um, I can't speak for other companies, obviously, but there, there was some hesitation from our distributors when purchasing because they didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. It's the first time we've experienced a global pandemic, certainly in in my lifetime. Um, so it, it was it was the unknown. So there, there were some nervous distributors that maybe didn't order the products in the in the volume that they would normally do, um, and that has caused exactly what you just said—a shortage of products. Um, we're kind of on top of it now production hasn't really been delayed so the next products that come through we should be able to satisfy the majority of orders but i think it took everybody by surprise how much people were still buying products it's been a it's been a good year before um for sales i should for sales i should say oh yeah i guess we should always clarify that Um, yeah exactly yeah (laughs) yeah before we get into your story and liat's growth in europe and in the sport in general um obviously you are the athlete and marketing manager so just quickly explain what that is exactly obviously it sounds like a lot so what does your day-to-day consist of and what is actually is your role at Liat? so i've, I've kind of my background at Liat has, has changed um over the last six years which is how long i've been with the company i've kind of grown into the position of athlete and marketing manager for for what we call row which is rest of the world so i, I don't take care of north america 
Um, so we have an office in California and they take care of the likes of Marvin Muscan and the uh, Motor Concepts team, etc. So any any North American athletes taken care of by California office. So I take care of all other global athletes. When I say global, I mean athletes that we support directly. So the likes of FNH Kawasaki, the likes of Johnny Walker, riders like that, Sean Simpson, Adam Sterry, that have a global appeal. So they race world championships. And then our distributors take care of what we call local athletes. So athletes that compete at a high level, but in their own market, maybe they're not GP riders, they're British Championship, French Championship, etc. So my role day to day is a tricky one um, because athletes are quite a, I say not, they're not quite a small part actually, they take up a lot of time, but I also do produce um, marketing documentation, website copy, uh, also get involved in product testing, product I have input into product uh, development. So it, it's a, I think people's perception of LIAT is that we're we're a huge global company. Obviously, we are a global brand, but we're kind of not on the same spectrum as a lot of the other brands. We're quite a small company where each person is very passionate about what they do, but we wear many hats. Hence why maybe everybody's role in the company is not exactly what's on their business card. So um, obviously, LIAT isn't a British company, far from it. Uh, you'd have to travel mm. across many countries to get to Liat's base in South Africa. So yeah. how does someone like you, who UK-based, UK-born, not South Afri- no South African roots as far as I know, how does yeah. someone like you get into this role? Where, does, where did you come from, as broad as that sounds? Okay, uh, so I actually, when I left school, um, so I'm, I'm 52 years old now, so left school um, at 16 on the Friday, started apprenticeship as a, car mechanic on the Monday at a local Peugeot dealership. Um, joined a family business um, that was also repairing cars. Cut a long story, a, a, a fairly boring story short. Um, somebody asked me about selling cars, which I'd never really thought about. So I got into car sales, then I became sales manager and then a general manager of a Toyota dealership. But I never really, uh, towards the end, it, 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 it didn't seem to fit with me. So I was looking for, for something else, and I've always been passionate about bikes. I, I never did schoolboy motocross or anything like that. Parents weren't interested. Um, the first bike I had was a DT50 <laughs> when I was 16, um, which I sold when I was 17 and bought an RM125. Because I, 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 I always, you know, I was that kid that woke up every Christmas morning, looked out the window, hoping to see a motocross bike and never did. Purely because we didn't really have the money, and like I say, um, my parents didn't really want me to ride off-road bikes. Yeah. So my first bike was when I was seventeen, and I, I didn't do a race for a few years because, again, I couldn't afford it. Um, so I've always been passionate about the sport, always loved the sport, and uh, didn't think I'd be able to get into it, to be honest, from the motor industry. But happened to call into a local shop who told me that a Pico were looking for a, a sales rep in that area. So I contacted Apico. Um, ironically, they're the distributor for Liat now, but they actually weren't at the time. So I was a kind of an account manager in the Southwest for the best part of 11 years. Um, and we used to attend the dirt bike show. When Apico took on the brand of, of Liat, it changed, uh, it changed distributor from the previous one to Apico. I met the general manager from Liat who came over from Sweden. Um, and we hit it off and he could see kind of how passionate I was about the brand because I 
I've always believed in the neck brace, always will. And I could see the forward growth of the brand. And I, I just enjoyed selling it. So he could see that. And probably for, a, I don't know, I'm going to guess eight months, nine months later, he just gave me a call out the blue and said, you know, we need somebody in the UK to kind of head up Leah to work alongside a Pico as a, in a support role. Because a Pico are a huge company that have well over 50 brands. Yeah. So for them to concentrate on, on Liat is, is pretty difficult. So I, I kind of acted, like I say, as a support role for them to help the sales reps and, and grow sales in the UK. Did that for a few years. Um, we had a change internally, which meant uh, we didn't have anybody taking care of the global athletes. Um, they knew, again, I was passionate about the racing side of it. So uh, they asked me to kind of take over that role, if you like, which I did. And it, it grew into a, a marketing position. So I'm sort of no longer attached directly to a Pico. I happen to be based in the UK, but um, I'm now the, yeah, the, the marketing manager and the athlete manager. But we all, so I have a colleague, I have two colleagues in Poland. I have a colleague in Germany. I have, uh, the general manager was in Sweden. He's now moved to Portugal. I have a colleague in Cyprus. We have the California office and obviously we have the Cape Town office. So it's, uh, we, are, we are truly a kind of global brand. So when you joined Liat, which it sounds like that was just complete happens chance, like right place, right time, right person yeah. to talk to, I guess. Yeah. I guess at that point, Liat was just a neck brace company and that was it. Like there was no, there was no talk of, oh, come and join Liat. And in 10 years time, we're going to have every product under the sun. It was just a neck brace company. That was it. We did neck and, uh, then it was neck and chest protection. Um, and we were, we were working on developing the first knee brace. Um, but there was certainly... I'm not sure of the plan, you know, the established plan back then, but there was certainly no talk of apparel um, and boots. But the natural progression of the company means that we are, we, you know, where we've come to now in such a short time is, is pretty amazing. And it's, it was natural progression. It's as simple as that. You know, we, we have biomedical engineers in, in Cape Town that design every single product that we sell. Nothing. We don't third party a product to anybody else so there are other brands that will ask a particular company to design something technical for them because they don't have the in-house maybe the in-house knowledge yeah we have biomedical engineers in so basically a biomedical engineer is somebody who's who's an engineer and studied the body as well so hence biomedical engineer and that they can then design everything we need whether it be helmets goggles knee braces chest protection and the natural progression of the company was that, that we ended up where we are now it wasn't certainly wasn't a plan back then and it's, it seems to have happened well it has happened very very quickly so what you just said there about um the biometrics and stuff like that i feel like i've just stumbled onto where science of thrill came from like leah is a science company first first and foremost rather than a a oh it'd be cool to make some gear let's pick some sick colors it's all science yeah, certainly. Obviously, that's where we started. Um, I don't. I don't. I know you've watched the, the the videos that we've recent recently produced, the Heritage series. But Liat began as a very technical brand. Um, we still are a technical brand. That's still the heritage of our company. But we understand that when you produce products like apparel, um, it has to be comfortable. It has to be lightweight. It has to be durable. Same with body protection knee protection so the, the the kind of the dynamics of the company hasn't really changed because like i say at the heart of the company 
safety and, and protection is first. But we've also kind of moved into a dynamic that's made us, I think, we're, we're certainly starting to become a cool brand. We're not, you know, I think that the difference with our brand is we started technical and we've moved into apparel. If you look at a lot of the other brands, they've started with apparel and then they move into the protection side. So I think that's the, the flip side of our company. We, we came from a founder who was um, a doctor yeah. who started the company for the right reasons in that um, he was a, 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 you know, a terrible day that's etched in his memories with his four-year-old son where somebody he knows went over the handlebars, broke his neck and, and died from the injury. Chris Liat tried his best to resuscitate him, but it, you know, it, it failed. So that's why the company was started. There's, there's no, there's no, no other way of explaining it. It wasn't started because I know I'm going to make a product and make loads of money. That, that wasn't why it was founded. It's now turned into a, a successful business, but the reason it started was very different to, I think, to many others. So going back to your path, I guess it's weird. Like it must be weird to look back on now because you were essentially a, um, what would you call it? A rung in the ladder at a Pico. And now you've kind of somehow gone from that to leapfrogging a Pico to now being above a Pico in a sense. Like that's quite a weird path for someone to take in two steps, essentially. Yeah. Again, I think it's because it's the way we mold, um, we mold people in the company. I, I, I've always worked hard. I'd like to think I've worked hard. Um, it, it, it's, I think it's quite difficult to get good, good people nowadays. Maybe that's saying I sound so old when I'm saying that nowadays. Well, it's a um, millennial age. People like me, <laughs> yeah. just not built as strong anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think, uh, I think um, Eric um, could see my potential, the general manager. He saw my history, saw how I probably progressed in the motor industry to start as a mechanic and end up as a general manager. I've always been quite ambitious. I love motorcycles, especially off-road. But I, you know, I enjoy road bikes as well, but I would say off-road is 90% of my interest, whether it be MX or Enduro. And to, to find somebody that passionate is not always, always that easy um, and be able to wear many hats. So it, it is... I wouldn't say I was above a Pico now, obviously there, you know, I, I still work with the Pico. Yeah. We have the same, same language. So, you know, I, I speak to them quite often, regard, you know, regarding marketing and sales, uh, marketing in particular. But um, it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly a rung up the ladder for Liat, for sure. But yeah, I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I'd encourage anybody looking to get into the industry that, you know, the, the opportunity is there to, to do what you want to do. It's not, it, it may be not the dream that people think it is. You know, I think, you know, somebody will walk past me that I know in the paddock and I'm, I'm under the awning with Sean Simpson or, or F&H or whoever it may be. I, you know, it's, it, that's not what it's about. You know that, Lewis, yeah. yourself. It's, 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 um, it's an enjoyable part, don't get me wrong, but it's not as rosy as it looks. It, it has its challenges, as all jobs do. That's where I think, though, your story, like, I genuinely believe your story will inspire that sounds like a big word but inspire some people listening to this because i think the common belief is that the only way you're going to get in the industry especially in a powerful position a privileged position i don't know what one would best apply to you but i think the the common consensus is that the best way to do that is to have an in uh, have a family member that works at a company but you didn't even race <laughs> like you literally no. have got to avert, like i would say a powerful position within liat definitely high up the ladder compared to most and it's just through hard work. There's nothing else to it. There's no 
um, well, yeah, you were lucky to know this person or you were lucky to have this family member or, oh yeah, well, he was already friends with so-and-so. Like, it's just, mm. it's just general, normal progression. Yeah, yeah. No, it, yeah, I think you're right. Um, but there is, the, the opportunities are there. They, they, they really are there. I, I mean, you know, I go back to sales. It's, I'd like to think I get along with most people and, and I think that's a great attribute to have for anybody. If you have to work in, in, a, in a sales environment, in a marketing environment, you're dealing with a lot of people a lot of the time. And, and um, that, like I say, I think it's, um, I wouldn't say it's a gift, but it's, it's, it's a big part of it. If you show enthusiasm, if you can show a, a background in, in some kind of sales, but you have an interest in the particular we're talking about MX here or off-road in general, then the opportunities are there. You need to, you need to go find them. So when you moved into this Liat role, obviously you weren't athlete and marketing manager straight off. When you started to transition, to transition into uh, athlete and marketing manager, were you a bit like deer in headlights? Because that's obviously quite a, I guess the sales aspect still relates to some senses but like we've said that's a big role like that's a big step and it's a powerful and crucial role where your decisions could effectively <laughs> go a good way or a bad way <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think it was yeah I think um the first time I went into the MXGP paddock paddock I should say as a as a, an athlete manager effectively was was quite daunting because I've never been one for, oh, can I have your autograph? But I've, I've always, you know, loved watching motocross and I admired the riders, whether whether they were English, French, German, American, it made no difference to me. Um, but I always admired the riders and, I, I, you know, as a fan, I still am a fan. So that was a little bit, as you say, deer in the headlights, but it's surprising the reaction I got actually of introducing myself and I, I have to say they were all fantastic. Um, there'd been a bit of a lull between us having an athlete manager and me come along. So I think it was, it was kind of, Oh, great. We've got someone, you know, and, and, um, obviously I'm still doing that same job several years down the road. So I'm, I'm a bit of a familiar face to them now in the paddock. I would say that's the only, the only part, the marketing position. I've had a lot of support internally. So I've kind of grown into that role. Um, but I say, yeah, the only, I would say the only, sort of daunting part for me initially was walking into the paddock for the first time. Um, but like I say, the reception was surprisingly good. What about um, meeting Dr. Chris Liat for the first time? How does that go? When you're getting employed, do you deal with him? Is he like some kind of king that you have to have a special meeting with to talk to? Like, I'd imagine that was another daunting uh, part of this. To be honest, um, no. Um, <laughs> it was a bit, well, if anyone... It's a bit of a funny story. So Eric, the general manager, he, he interviewed me um, and we, we the deal was done basically, but obviously this was over a certain period and uh, he then dealt with the CEO. I'm sure Chris was involved, um, Chris Liat, um, but there is a, a CEO in, in Cape Town that basically runs the business day to day and um, deals with, with the staff and and uh, and. and deals directly to Chris or reports directly to Chris. So Chris is still involved in a, an active role in the business when it comes to product development. And um, that's key that he is still involved. He's super, super passionate and um, still is today. So, um, but I didn't actually have an interview with Chris. 
Um, but I was I was basically given given the job without signing a contract, and then invited to a distributor conference, which we usually have annually in a different country. Uh, this year has been uh, a virtual distributor conference, which was strange. But usually we go to uh, we'll select a different country where we get all the distributors around. They they see the new products, um, and we tell them the plan for the for the next twelve months. Well, this this is the first time I've flown twice before, I think, and then um, I was told to fly to uh, an island. Um, that sounds very ominous. A, yeah, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna explain a little bit more. And uh, so the uh, I jump in a taxi when I get to the get to the airport and I say this this is where I need to go this hotel and the guy was I didn't know this place I was like okay but I'll, t- I'll take you to the area and we'll take it for there so um, the 35 minute ride in a taxi would have put up outside the, the hotel and um, there's like a, a mini bus in front these doors burst open and uh, a load of girls jump out and women aging between 50 and 20, all with Sharon's Hindu <laughs> scarfs around their neck and T-shirts on. And I was like, where am I? And on the back of the T-shirt, it had Magaluf. And I was in Shagaloof, as it's known in the UK. Like, <laughs> Wait, so you, wait the, the island that you were supposed to go to, well, I'm guessing it's South Africa or not? No, 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 no. Oh. It was Magaluf. I, oh, okay. was, I was given, a, I was basically, yeah, I had to book the ticket and, not well traveled at all at the time. I had no idea where I was going. Just literally working by a map and a piece of paper that someone had given me. And then I realized I was in Magaluf, which all I'd heard about was all these horrific stories of where uh, 1830s holidays take place um, well, on the strip. So how and, was Sharon's uh, Hindu? <laughs> I, I, I have to say I didn't participate. Is I she was, doing well? But I did <laughs> That's <laughs> not Mrs. King now, I'd like to say. <laughs> but but um but no, um and that's where the distributor conference was. We we were literally two hundred yards from the strip and I have to say it was I mean it was off season, but um it and that was my first experience of Liat was was our distributor conference in Magaluf and since then it's been Barcelona, Cape Town twice, uh Rome, yeah, so so many different places, uh Warsaw. So, um, but yeah, that was, that was my interview and that's where I met the CEO, was in Magaluf. Yeah. So the country of these distributor uh, conferences changes every year based, I guess it's just so that it's one year it's easier for some people than others and other years it's easier for the other group. Like, I guess that's why? Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's, it's, um, obviously we have, we have distributors all over the world. So we used to split them into two. Um, we had one in, we would have one in a Europe kind of based country and then another one in Asia. Um, but now what we try and do is have it in a in a location that suits both. Um, we've, to be honest, the most popular ones are always Cape Town because it's fairly central. Most people can fly there. I don't know if those that know, if you fly from the UK, yeah, it's an 11-hour flight, but the time difference is only, well, it's two hours at the moment, but shortly it'll be one hour. So there's no there's no jet lag from mainland Europe, et cetera. So that, that works well. And to be honest, um, all the staff are able to attend. It's a great boost for them to meet the distributors, in you know, interact with the distributors. The distributors can see the lab that we have in Cape Town. They can, like I say, they, they get to meet everybody in the company. So to, to be honest, the Cape Town Distributor Conference is a pretty legendary. They're, they're the, 
they're our preferred choice for sure. So I'd imagine when it was bouncing around all over the place, there was a massive drum roll when that um, email came in. You were hoping for the best and like, it'd be like this year's conference is in Liverpool. And you're just like, oh, well, oh no. <laughs> uh, I was really hoping to get on a plane, I got, really. <laughs> I, got, I got nothing against Liverpool. No, oh yeah, the, true. The, um, Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, I said earlier that, that the, the general manager used to live in Finland uh, where it gets to minus 27 in the winter and darkness for 24 hours of the day. So he's now moved to Portugal. But when he was in in uh, Sweden, we had to go to a climate that was fairly warm to give him some rays to make him happy. So uh, we usually chose warmer climates. Um, yeah. To, to keep him happy, but say now he's in now he's in Portugal, so maybe we'll have one in Finland. Who knows? Oh, that sounds that sounds like that would not be one of the top ten locations for a distributor conference. <laughs> no. Um, no. So going back to the MXGP paddock, what, yeah. so I guess it was made easier because when you entered, there was a hole for an athlete manager, so there were already athletes in place. So you all, when you walked into the paddock for the first time in this role, you kind of had places to go and people to see rather than walking in and being like, okay, we have no athletes, we have nothing, and I need to somehow figure this out and talk to people, and I don't know how to do this. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I had, to be honest, I had relationships with Sean Simpson and Adam Sterry. I'd met them, I'd, I'd helped them with products because I was based in the UK, and obviously they were UK-based, or are UK-based. Um, I, I already know those guys, knew these guys. I actually originally did the contract with Adam Sterry before I was in the role. Um, so, I knew the British base riders pretty well, but but um, the other riders, um, Mikhail Chervelin, um, Johnny Walker, we we kind of met at the same time. As I became into the role, he became um, a leader athlete. Uh, Joseph Garcia, I didn't know from Enduro, and Alfredo Gomez from Enduro, I didn't know. But but all these distributors, uh, sorry, all these athletes have pretty good relationships with their local distributors. So. The, the ones I was mentioning then, they, they work very well with our Spanish distributor and uh, Michel Chervelin with, with Italy, etc. So there were, it, it, and I have to say, I, I can't stress enough, they were all really welcoming um, and didn't, didn't make it difficult at all. But at the time, we were, we were we, we just started in, in apparel, if you like, but we didn't have a team as such in our clothing. So that was kind of my goal was to, to get somebody in the clothing um, and that's where when I first met F&H well um, um, that was where I was going to yeah. go next so F&H is obviously yeah. a big part of Liat's uh, well I guess activities in Europe as a whole um, or outside yeah. of America at least so I feel like you got involved with that team at the right time because it was an EMX 250 team everyone knows it now as like this amazing Kawasaki team in MX2 that can fight for GP wins uh, it wasn't always that, and actually only a couple of years ago, it was just an EMX team that was kind of there and thereabouts, and like everyone knew of it, but it wasn't the powerhouse that it is now. So you got involved at the right time and have just ridden this wave with them to the top of MX2 as well, so that's nice for you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you've got it in a nutshell there, because I met uh, Natalie, who's the, the manager for F&H, after speaking to Bavo, um, who again you know is an MXGP photographer, um, he was our the Liat photographer, so where we get our images from <coughs> at MXGP events. And Bavo introduced me to Natalie. Um, like you say, as they were basically an EMX 250 team. Um, if I'm honest, I I didn't you know walking into the paddock for the first time. You see you know being a fan watching the GPs 
whether it be on TV or, or at the event. But you don't necessarily, wrongly, take notice of the smaller teams. And they were a smaller team at the time. Um, so I was introduced to Natalie. Her father was there and also her brother, Brian, uh, and her father, Harry. And literally sat down, had a coffee, and um, they were with another brand at the time, but they weren't getting much support. So I literally opened up my laptop and went through, this is the, this is the product we've got. Um, and the deal was done probably a month later. Um, what, what I really liked about their story was one is, um, it, it's a family, it's a family team who are super passionate about motocross. I, I know a lot of the teams are, but it was the fact that it was, it wasn't a business. It was a, it was a family that was growing and, and really wanted to become a force to be reckoned with in, in MXGP Palette. And I, I just listened and, uh, and it just made, it just made sense. You know, I think when you, if you're at a job interview or if you meet someone and you think, you know, this, this, this is good. I had that feeling with F and H and I think they did with us and we were just getting into apparel. They were just getting into MX2. So like you, you kind of explained, we, we've grown together. You know, they're, they're now in the boots. We hope to grow the categories going forward. Um, and, you know, like you say, they're, they're now arguably, well, they are, they're, they're a podium team. They have three riders that can all podium. Um, and to be part of that is, is, is exciting for us. It's, it's, it's amazing. But I, you know, I, I, Harry's English isn't very good. That's quite a funny story, actually, because I, I spoke to Natalie and, um, she was translating to Harry, um, and he was nodding. There's certain words he could pick up, but his English isn't great and my Dutch doesn't exist. So, it was a it was a bit tricky, and for two years. And Harry's such a nice guy; you can see his passion when you know when Rowan van der Moes like won the MX250 series. You could see oh, he was so thrilled, so thrilled. It was yeah, it was great to see. So he's such a nice guy, but I've never really had to have a be able to have a proper conversation with him. A couple of years ago at Lommel, when Chris Liat came over, um, again he's native South African, and. I walked in and introduced us. I said, uh, Natalie, this is Chris. And, you know, they had, they had a nap. And I said, oh, this is Harry. Unfortunately, his English isn't very good. And he said, oh, it should be okay. He said, it's similar to Afrikaans. And I'm like, oh, is it? Is and it? then, <laughs> so after, yeah, exactly, it is. And so after two years of me trying to speak to Harry and never could, Chris Liat walks in and bang, they're off laughing and joking and sitting down and drinking. <laughs> Having a whale of a time, it was really frustrating. <laughs> I feel like I need to, that's actually the most confusing thing I've ever heard in my life. I need to yeah, rethink well, everything I know about the world. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of Dutch people that moved to South Africa. So if you, um, it, it, you'll see it's, it's a favourite, it's a fan favourite for people to go to, for Dutch people to go to South Africa. Well, Mark Deruva goes there every year. Actually, I have seen that. But then yeah. I just thought that was yeah, a Mark Deruva thing because he just does no, no, strange no, no, things. No, it's a Dutch thing. It's so, a Dutch thing. So two things about F&H. Um, obviously, this was your baby, in a way. You were the one who probably took it into Liat and said, this is an F&H team that I believe in. This is blah, blah, blah. How much pressure is there on you within Liat if F&H aren't delivering results? Like, are you watching the races nervously? And like, say, uh, Fienza or Mantova this year, they were in a bit of a rut and it wasn't going as well as it had been in Latvia. 
does that, do you start to get questions from within Liat? Like, well, we really need a podium team. Or we really like, so what's going on? Because we really need them to win races. Like, does it work like that? Or is it kind of your just left to run a uh, deal with the team and like whatever happens happens uh yeah the latter basically i mean i wouldn't say it's not quite as as it i'm not scrutinized for what i do i'm i'm paid to do a job they i'd like to think they trust trust my judgment um it, it's rarely it goes perfectly you know the last i think the last two years um have been an incredible step forward with f and h um with yeah i mean Rome won the EMX 250 title in Udavella. Um, that's something that will never change. Our first championship in Moto Gear was Rome van der Moosdijk of F&H Racing Kawasaki. That that will always that that can never change. Um, we had podiums with um, with Mikkel the start of this year, with Matisse uh, last year with Henry Jacoby. Poor Adam had I don't know how many fourth. Well, they're good <laughs> as well. Been, yeah. Yeah, should have been. someone's oh, yeah, got to do it. Third, yeah, but I mean, no. The, uh, the, the, I say there's no pressure with results. F and H put enough pressure on themselves to get results. Um, I don't. I, I certainly have nothing to do. You know, that's not that's not my part of my role to to say that they're 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 not getting podiums. We want we want podiums, of course, but they're a professional team with a physical trainer, with uh, a riding coach, with factory assisted parts now you know they they know what they're doing and um i think for for us to to um to go forward with them we follow their plan um their results no pressure no there's there's no you know i i would say if they were 29 30 31 then we'd be you know <laughs> be having words but i i think um that's motocross it's there's a there's a select few riders that that gel into a team and and we know those riders are the ones with eight nine ten championships um they they don't come along very often so I think I think they have three fantastic riders um and uh, I certainly don't apply any pressure to them it's I just like being we like we like being part of it and and they they enjoy being part of the Liat family that's for sure. Look, it's one of my um biggest pet peeves with GPS, but. Well, it's not even really a pet peeve. It's just a way of the world. But obviously in America, it's much easier to, for riders to get exposure and for riders to expose themselves. Everyone speaks the same language. Um, social media is more of a thing over there. So it can be harder in GPs with certain guys to, I don't know, get the most out of them, I guess, away from the track. So how much focus do you put on the nationalities that go into FNH? Like when FNH had Adam, for instance, was that just a win for you? Because like British rider that hits the British market, brilliant, that works perfectly. And like, same with Bra is it like, okay, French rider, brilliant. We needed one of those. Like, are you looking at it from that angle or are you just like, oh, that rider can get good results. Awesome. Absolutely. Uh, I, I have to be honest, if F&H, obviously they're a Dutch team. If they said we're always going to have Dutch riders, it, it wouldn't be of any interest to me. Um, the fact that they have different nationalities, like I say, they had we had they had um, Adam, they had Henry Jacoby before he was fantastic for Germany. Um, this year, like you say, the, the mix is perfect. We have we have somebody from the Nordics, which is obviously Nickel from Denmark, and uh, Matisse from from France, um, and Rowan from from the Netherlands. So it's a, it's a it's a great mix of riders. We we have to sell products in all over the world, and. Um, 
certain countries. So if you take uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they tend to follow America um, very closely. Yeah. UK to a degree as well, as you'll know yourself, but we also follow MXGP, but the rest of Europe tend to be MXGP focused. So for us to have a, a global presence um, is, is super important. Um, you know, I signed Camille Chapelier this year, um, who people may or may not know from Red Bull KTM last year. They've, they've now finished with their, with their sand race program, as you know, because obviously of um, uh, Nathan Watson as well, yeah. losing his ride. But I picked Camille up because um, he's great for the French market. Um, he does Dakar racing, sand racing. So a really important part of the business is, is where those athletes come from. It's, yes, definitely something I look at. And it's very easy. You know, I could, I could pick up five riders in, in the UK. It'd be great, but that's not going to work. Um, we, need, we need global presence with, with our athletes. So if you look at your program now, is there a hole on the map where you're like, I could really do with a rider from X country? I mean, like you say, F&H cover the bases pretty well. And then you've got Sean Simpson, so that's the UK covered. Um, yeah. But have you got like a little X on a map somewhere where you're like, if only I could get someone from sort of Germany way or Russia or whatever? Yeah, I, yeah, there is for sure. There's, there's certain pockets that I would like, but to try and, to try and achieve that each time is, is difficult. And this is where we rely on our on our local distributors. So we have a great distributor in Germany who who support teams that compete in <clears throat> excuse me in the in the ADAC German series, which is super successful. So they they produce their own content, and we we also use their content to to share throughout Liat timeline on social media. So we kind of work with our distributors closely and, and we don't always, it, it's, there's, there's no urgency. If you like it, ideally I'd like, you know, F and H to have a rider in Germany or whatever, but a, a, another rider or another team with, with different riders in different countries, but it's, it's hard to do. It's, it, it's, it's easier said than done. So you mentioned dealers in different countries dealing with like kind of narrowing down their market with riders and doing a good job of that. How, yeah. How does that work then if, say, um, so Sean Simpson, you've got a personal deal with him. He's a British yeah. rider, uh, mostly yeah. appeals to the British audience. So yeah. through and through, he's British, no doubt about it. However, he's yeah. also in the World Championship and he's a big enough name where you could make an argument that he's global. So yeah. is there, with a Pico in that sense or dealers from any country, is there sometimes a bit of like a push and a pull as far as like, no, he's your guy, no, he's our guy and like, Obviously, it kind of all works in the same way in the end because you're promoting Liat, but is there a bit of a debate sometimes about whether it should be a dealer's rider or, or a distributor, sorry, a distributor's rider or a um, Liat uh, rest of world athlete? Not really, to be honest. We've never really had that conversation. And as a, as a company, we've, I think we have a fantastic relationship with all our distributors all over the world. So if, if we can support them, we will. We have an internal program which, which they're enabled to to use to to um, to support sponsored riders in in their countries, respective countries. But if so, the, the long and the short of it is, if if um, so, Sean does the World Championships, um, so I take care of him. He's been a he's been a global uh, Liat neck brace athlete for many many years now, um, and hopefully he'll stay with us until he decides to to move on. 
but there's never really a, I, I can't think of a, a single time where I've had a dispute with a distributor over who does what. It's quite clear if, if they're a, a kind of global athlete that do a full championship, then we tend to take care of them. Um, and uh, again, if they're just doing their, their British championship, French championship, German championship, then it's the responsibility of the, of the distributor. Uh, this is Dave King, athlete and marketing manager uh, from Liat on the newest podcast on the MX Vice platform. Uh, sponsored by Liat, Liat's commitment to extensive development and protection continues with the launch of a new 7.5 helmet. The 7.5 features Liat's revolutionary head and brain injury reduction technology and simply protects your head and brain from impact forces that occur in a crash. Their 7.5 helmet includes large ventilation channels, moisture wicking fabric, and a free pair of Liat Velocity goggles which you can learn more about at liat.com. Quite simple. And also Prox Racing Parts. Prox Racing Parts supply genuine replacement products which meet or even exceed OEM quality. All parts are manufactured to highest quality standards at state-of-the-art manufacturing facilities around the world. Hence why everything that Prox Racing Parts offers exceeds the high-level requirements that all motocross riders require. Head to Prox now to learn more about what's on offer for your bike. Speaking about the... Liat goggles, just there, that come with the 7.5 helmet. Obviously, Sean is now running those for the 2021 season. He's been with uh, Scott, I think, for years and years and years. So, how big is that for you to have Sean make the transition into the Liat goggle and also just have another guy running that product? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, Sean, um, I'm sure you've dealt with Sean. He's, he's so professional in, in the way he operates. Um, it's, we, we love working with him anyway, and then to, to get him on another product category. He was he was already in contract with with other products, but it was um, contract time with the goggles, and uh, he approached us, um, tested the goggles, really was really impressed. Actually, I think surprised how how good they were. So um, yeah, he'll be wearing the goggles, but it also to get feedback from someone like Sean, who's been in the racing at, at his level for so long. Um, you know, he can he can help us tweak the goggle if we need to if we're working on a new product then he can help us with that as well that's maybe the side of it that, that people don't see um, but Sean's the perfect person person for that um, and it's you know I'm hoping to see him on um, on podiums with our goggles on his neck uh, Does it ever get to a point where riders um, whether it be FNH uh, Simpson or anyone like that kind of need uh, what would you call it specific um, changes made to a product just to tailor the specific size of their head, neck, foot now, in the case of boots, everything, I guess, that Leah does. <laughs> is, yeah, it ever, does yeah. it, is that something that happens? Like, do you have to make, um, what, like, speciality products to fit, to form their body perfectly? No, um, I can honestly say that everything everybody uses is, is off the shelf. Um, in the early days, we did, um, uh, we did custom pants for F&H for the first couple of years. Um, but they were kind of helping us develop the pants where we are now. So I order, when I do my athlete and, and media marketing order, they're taken off the shelf and they go to F&H exactly the same as the consumer buys uh, from their from their e-com store or their dealer. So the, the only thing that's custom really is the jersey. So we have supplemented gear that are made at the factory um, for the teams. Um, so rather than a, an iron-on name and number, then they're sublimated into the material. But apart from that, everything is, I'm just trying to think if there's anything that's, that's, no, it's not. No, everything that they're using is, is stock. 
And uh, on a similar note, what about neck braces? Because obviously the F&H riders aren't wearing neck braces. Uh, completely their choice. No. You would never put pressure yeah. on them to do so. Is that, I guess some people might look at that and be like, oh, they're not running the Liat neck brace. But also I think that's a good thing that they've made that decision because it's almost, you don't have to wear Liat gear if you run a Liat neck brace or likewise with any other product. Like the gear now is strong enough and the helmet is strong enough and the boots are strong enough to stand alone where it can be a choice for someone without them already being married to a Liat neck brace. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, this, this goes back to what I said earlier. The foundation of the company was the neck brace. It's something we'll, we still we still continue to develop. Um, we still keep banging the, the neck brace drum, but as you said, it, it's personal preference. Um, um, we, we, you know, we work with Sean, we work with Adam and, and Chervelin, Yago Geertz with, with neck braces. They're all firm believers in the product. Um, the the evidence evidence is now clear of how effective a neck brace is in an accident. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's it's an ongoing um, conversation I have with with many riders <clears throat> each year. Um, sometimes you lose some. Sometimes you gain some. Um, I'm trying to work with younger riders that are coming coming up through the EMX classes that are wearing neck braces to encourage them to stay in them and that seems to be working working well we've got some you know the likes of andre adamo um who's i think 17 years old now um been in the neck brace since he was 13 12 i'm gonna say so he was the last rider that won the i'm sure you know the 150 yeah so was he in a neck brace at that point he was yeah and that's when i approached him because that was at Udavella as well, actually. Um, it was, I think it was the year before Rowan won his championship. And uh, I went to, I was watching, went out to watch the 150 class. And uh, I mean, he was, yeah, he was really impressive. Um, so I approached him and his and his mum, and I've been supporting him ever since. He's a, he's a superstar in the making, for sure. He's got some, got some clear talent. I think he was at the International last weekend and was, was mixing it with the big guns, for sure. So, um, we, we're trying to, you know, work on on um, neck braces with younger riders as well to, to bring them up through the ranks. But to come back to what you said about the other products, um, yeah, we, we we have a full, you know, we have helmet, we're head to toe now. And I think this is it's quite interesting that that um, have conversations about, you know, the the the, the teams obviously are, are paid to wear products, certain products, so clothing and boots, etc. And the money that has to be um, turned over into, into, into sales of those products aren't necessarily tied to gear. So I think people think, you hear about the telephone numbers of, of, of these figures in, in the US, in particular with top athletes. The way, the way we see it in LIAT is that it, it's growing our brand. So I always remember um, we were doing the, the photo shoot out in Spain three years ago, I think it was, with Ryan Sight. And we were sitting down at lunch in, uh, it was at Red Sands actually. And, and we were the only ones there. We were, it was just midday sun. It was super hot. So we sat down for, you know, for an hour just to have a break. And, uh, he was looking through the catalog and he said, Jesus, I didn't realize how many products you guys do. Cause he, you know, he, he wouldn't normally get a chance to look through our products. He just gets sent, sent what he needs. So, um, that kind of and that that got me thinking and and, and if you think about it if, if we're doing a you know if if F and H are wearing our gear then hopefully that will mean people will look on our 
on our website or their local dealer's website or, the, or maybe their local shop's catalogue, point them in that direction. Then they see the helmets we do, the goggles we do, the protection we do, chest, the elbow guards, the knee guards, the knee braces, the impact shorts, the boots. It, it takes people to the Liat brand. It's not just about turning over enough money to cover the cost of the sponsorship for the gear. I think that's, that's a short-sighted way of looking at it. it it's, it's putting our brand in front of the shop window, in, in front of the consumer. Um, does, uh, does moving into another uh, different product categories, in your role specifically dealing with athletes, can that, cause, uh, could, can that cause problems with conflicts? As in like, there are some brands out there that, say Liat did neck braces and goggles, there would be a goggle manufacturer that would then be like, well, you can't run their neck brace because they're technically a competitor to our goggle. So like, has that been a little bump or a hurdle that you've had to kind of um, find a way to step over or around? Now that Liat does effectively offer everything and compete with everyone in every product category. Yeah, we unfortunately we've become a pain in the ass now for a lot of other brands. Like I'd imagine um, when it was just neck brace, it was easy because every, as, unless a company, another company, um, made or sold a neck brace, it was like, yeah, sure, you can run a Liat neck brace. That's no conflict or at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you're, you're dead right. Um, I think it was who signed for uh, Fox Goggles. Um, Sewer? Yes. Um, and he was only in them for, I think, uh, was it a month? Oh, um, I don't know if sudden, he made it that long. <clears throat> yeah, and then they were gone. Well, that was obviously in the contract. It was he could get his own goggles, but I guess in the small print, what they didn't put was it, it can't be a conflicting brand. So, yeah, you're right. When we were just neck braces, I'm pretty sure that the majority of <clears throat> athletes that are out there would still, or their their teams would allow us to have Liat on the front of the brace as an additional branding exercise. But you'll notice now there's, there's very, very little of this. And this is because we are now a conflicting brand. Um, so when the microphone's put under the, put under the mouth of, of Yago Geertz, you'll notice that our, our brand is no longer on the front. And that's purely for that reason that you've just said. So it's kind of, um, it's disappointing, but at the same time, I totally get it. I guess it's you know, not um, it's not as big of a problem though as far as the neck brace is con- um, concerned because as like you say, uh, Yago's neck brace doesn't have Liat branding all over it, but the Liat mm-hmm. neck brace is so entrenched in everyone's minds now yeah. that you yeah. don't need to see the logo. Like I think ninety percent of riders or fans out there see a Liat neck brace and can recognise it by the shape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Yeah, they, uh, that is one exception. Um, but yeah, it's. To get goggles on a rider is is difficult. Um, if there's a you know us being a conflicting brand, um, it depends on the on the level of the team. To be honest, um, it's it's different in America actually because um, you'll see a lot of the U.S. teams they have, or or the team there's there's not team deals. We were super lucky with Motor Concepts that we've got um, head to toe contract. But that's quite unique, actually. The majority of the teams in the States, they do their own deals, as, as you know. Yeah. But in, in Europe, it tends to be the team has a deal. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, it, it, it is a bump in the road, but at the same time, um, it's working for us as a brand. So it's, it's just very difficult to, to get head-to-toe riders. I don't think the people um, watching the sport necessarily understand that. It's, it's very, very difficult to get head-to-toe. Um, if you look at some of the, the, the what's considered the top MXGP tiers, not all of those are head to toe. 
they'll be in a different helmet um, or goggle or whatever it may be. And if, if they can't crack it, then it's difficult for, for me, you know? Well, as we mentioned at the top of the show, um, when you started Liat, Liat's uh, product line was fairly small and niche. Uh, now it's everywhere with every product under the sun, you name it. I feel like Liat's got it. Has that been difficult for you from a marketing perspective? Because you're like, okay, another pro- like It just seems like there's a constant conveyor belt of products landing in your lab that you need to then work on marketing in Europe. Like, is that an easy process or is that difficult? It's, it's, um, it's both really. <laughs> Because it's what it means is that we can produce great assets for <clears throat> our distributors, our, our websites, um, for social media. So it means we have more, more product categories to get great images, to work with great athletes, to, to, to gain these assets. But at the same time, obviously, the workload increases. So um, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, really. <laughs> we're, getting, um, we're getting more and more engagement. We're getting more and more followers. The brand is increasing in, in popularity globally, but obviously the workload increases. So, um, but but like I say, you know, we 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 get the support. If um, if it becomes overloaded, then it's it's a you know a call to the general manager and the CEO, and and we, we figure it out. So it's good because um, I think the way that marketing has changed. Um, visual assets are so important now so there's only so much marketing you can do on if you're selling jerseys and pants yeah but for us for us to have everything we have and you know continuing to grow that product line as well uh, it hasn't stopped just for your information you know we'll 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 continue growing it is great because we can we can gain all these great digital assets so is there is there one product or new one product that was new at one point that was particularly difficult to market, or more so than others? Like, was there one that was a bit of a thinker and a head scratcher? Not really. Um, probably not the answer you wanted. <laughs> just no, think, not... just take, dive into that memory bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't think there was really. I mean, it helps when you. I think with something as niche as as off road bikes which it is niche. It's not like selling tomatoes or oranges or apples. It's, it's a niche market, and that's where the knowledge has to come into it, you know, the interest in the sport, the knowledge of those products. So, you know, I'm interested. It, it probably comes back from when I was a mechanic, you know. I guess it's uh, – I was never an engineer, but it's kind of an engineering job. So I'm interested in how a product's built. So when we're, you know, right from day one with the boot, I'm involved in how it looks, how it feels, how protective it is, how comfortable it is, the fact that we need a low a low profile toe box for easy shifting, this kind of thing. So I think um that's that hopefully that comes across in, in our in our marketing and um that's I think I think that's the difference. I, I kinda I'm quite knowledgeable on the product, so it's not a huge challenge for me. I know how knee braces operate. I know how neck braces operate. I know our 360 turbine technology. You know, it's not, I think maybe that again goes back to the fact that we're, we're a close knit Liat family. We're involved in, in everything. We're not sitting at a desk with a, with a shut door and okay, you've got to market this product that you know nothing about. I know everything about it because I've been there from day one. 
So the latest, um, the latest thing to come out from Liat was the 7.5 helmet and before that, uh, the 4.5 boots. Obviously, yeah. Liat already had uh, strong boots that were used by FNH and whatnot. So why, why the need for a 4.5 boot? Like, where did that desire come from to be like, you know what, let's make another boot to add to the line? Um, so if, if, you're, if you sell only high-end products, then you're kind of limiting your, your consumer. Um, there are those guys that, that only want the 5.5 gear. They only want the 9.5 helmet, the top of the range, the most expensive, the carbon 9.5 helmet, like I say. But we need to cater for all markets. So the 4.5 boot is, is the platform of the 5.5 without the flex lock system. Effectively, there's a couple of other little tweaks, but basically it's the 5.5 without the, without the adjustable flex lock system. Um, and and as I say, when you you know we we have to open our shop window for for the consumer with with different um, different deeper pockets, whether you know whether they have more to spend or or a higher budget or a lower budget. And the same for the seven point five helmet. It's based on the eight point five. Um, it has the same three sixty turbine technology. It has a slightly different interior quality, shall we say, and feel. But effectively, it's the same helmet made from a from a different material, um, and again, it appeals to a different a different clientele. Um, we we have to make sure that when you walk into a, a store that has Liat products, that that the price that we have products for, for price range that suits all. I guess yeah. I guess the thing that will help you and everyone at Liat sleep at night is when you can be presented with any person in the world, any uh, type of rider, type of lifestyle, and they go, oh, I need. X product, but it needs to cost X amount and I can't afford X amount. And you can go, yep, this one is for you. Like, I guess that's the goal. Exactly. You've, you've essentially got exactly. something that can cater to every single type of person. Exactly. And, it, and, if, and to be honest, if you look at all the competitors, all our competitors, they're all in the same situation. They all produce uh, different price point products. Um, and uh, the fact that we develop ours, ours in-house, so we'll work from a, from a high-end product, and then we'll look when we can maybe change something to suit somebody that, that's not working to that budget, but still have the highest quality product. The 4.5 boot is fantastic. Um, it's gone down so well. It's, it, it, it looks very, very similar to the 5.5, but like I say, with, without the, the, the flex lock system at a great price. And that's been shown in the sales. I think I'm pretty, pretty sure we're sold out in Europe like two months after the boot coming out. So obviously, um, marketing the newer products is an important thing. Otherwise, no one's going to hear about it. Does yeah. less need to be done on the marketing side with the neck brace? Because as we mentioned 10 minutes ago, it's so known. Like it, what, uh, Essentially, what more can you tell people about the Liat neck brace that they don't already know? It's such an established product. So is there less to be done on the marketing side with that? Or do the naysayers in the world mean that you always have to be on your toes and kind of educating? Yeah, no, definitely. We, we have to we have to push it continuously. Um, it's the heritage of the company. It's still Chris Liat's most passionate product. Um, and as you say, the the, the, the non-believers, should we say, we have to keep banging the drum. The the evidence is there on on how that product can help reduce neck injuries massively. Not only our studies, but also there's independent studies now from EMS Action Sports in, in the US. Yeah. 
they did a they did a study over ten years, something we had no involvement with. We didn't even know it was taking place uh, until they contacted us with the results, and the results were astounding. So that was real life tests done by um, an action sports medical facility that attends races, and the nice thing is it's it's races that aren't at pro level. So it's effectively, if you're in the UK, it would be maybe the MX Nationals, the Acerbis, um, BSMA Schoolboy, this this kind of thing. So um, it's real life stats and data. And like I say, the results speak for themselves. Uh, EMS action studies was a game changer, but it, 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 there's, you can't argue against those facts. But we need to continue to, to bang that drum and, and ensure that people people have the right information and, and not necessarily to listen to what they're told in the paddock by Fred the Builder or, you know, it's the facts are there. So, no, but we, we need to keep on to people um, and uh, marketing the, the fact that the, the brace is there to reduce neck injuries and it works. It's funny because, like, obviously, the naysayers in the world, um, Ryan Hughes is one of them, everyone knows that. It's funny, stuff like that comes out, but I feel like in a very roundabout way, and stay with me here, it helps you in a way because you can then offer a counter and educate again. It kind of, it's almost giving you a platform to inform people and counter the point with the science. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm looking at that in a very rose-tinted way, but it almost seems like it's giving you a great opportunity to market further. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's difficult for us when a, when a, a trainer, um, and he's not the only one, um, a negative about many products, not just neck braces, if, if, they're, if they have a huge following and they're, they're an influencer, which they are, sometimes it, it doesn't matter what you do. Um, it, it doesn't have the effect that you, that you require or that you, you're trying to put across. It's, um, it's quite frustrating at times. I, I understand what you're saying. And if there's a, a thread on, um, on a, any kind of social post, then, if it's spotted by us, you'll see you'll see us drop the link in. We don't tend to comment because uh, you just end up digging yourself in a hole, and, it, and it's it's not we're not keyboard warriors. That's not how we that's not how we work. But we will just direct people to the to the correct information uh, and leave it there. Um, but no, the neck brace will continue to market and continue and always will do. A couple more things before we wrap up. I asked uh, Doctor Chris, mm. great friend of mine, Doctor Chris. Uh, I asked him a couple of years ago. <laughs> what the future of neck braces is because in my eyes from the outside looking in i feel like it's developed to the point where i don't see how they can get any better it just seems like it's come so far that it's almost the perfect product now um from your perspective within liat or maybe you know something is there still further that that can go i guess always there's always new science and new research that causes people to stumble onto things but i just feel like it's come so far that at some point you hit the sweet spot yeah um you're a big fan with Dr. Cross as well. Oh, we will he be calling was... Dr. Chris very soon. <laughs> he, said, he said it was one of the best interviews he's ever had. Actually. And I'm sure you'll say and the you... same about this. <laughs> um, the the 6.5 and 5.5 neck brace. So the 6.5, for those that don't know, is the carbon brace that you'll see all our athletes wear. That's going to be tricky to beat. Um, we're always looking to improve and, uh, and uh, I, I can't confirm or deny that we are uh, 
looking at something we we always are we're always looking to to improve and develop um but the 6.5 is so light so adjustable um so effective um and the 5.5 is 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 the same but made of a composite material so it's a little bit heavier and but it's more more pocket friendly should we say it's going to take some beating um but again like i say we you know we we're constantly looking to improve things but that particular product, the adjustability, um, the platform, the materials that are used, and like I say, the effectiveness—it's—it's um, it's difficult. It's going to be difficult, I think, to to improve it massively. But like I say, um, the biomedical engineers are, are constantly looking to improve things. They're always in the lab testing. So the the basically, if you can imagine a building, the biomedical engineers are upstairs. Yep. Open, open plan, and then below them is the lab. So we have um, all the testing equipment so we can test everything in-house um, to CE standards and above, obviously. So helmets, neck brace, chest protection, uh, knee braces. We have various different test rigs all downstairs that are basically the same as used by the standard. So we're in the, in the great position where we produce a product. Yeah. Um, nowadays, we can print 3D as well. So again, we can we can print it in in Cape Town and test it, and we know straight away that it's going to pass CE or it doesn't pass CE, or it's um, it, it's um, I can explain. It's we need to change this part because it's working there, but it's not working there. And this is where I think we're ahead of the game with many brands that when we go to CE, when we send, when I, we submit our products for CE testing, we know, we know where we are. We've never had anything back saying, oh, that doesn't pass because we know it does. So I guess that so, also um, speeds up the process because if you were always sending things out for third-party testing, that would take X amount of time, whereas you can just be like, we need to test this, we need to research this, boom, get it done, and then within X amount of time, very quickly, quick as possible, you've got the answers and you've got a path forward. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly right. We are, I, I, it saves huge amount of times, uh, a time I should say. It's, it's, uh, it's, I say that the, the, the lab is, is probably 20 miles outside Cape Town. Um, we have several biomedical engineers. We have, um, two people in the lab full time that are, that are testing products, um, working with the, with the engineers. Um, obviously, we're working with CEO also. Um, that's something that, that Chris Liat himself is constantly badgering to improve safety standards as, as a base level so that products become, the safety standards become higher. Um, so uh, Chris, Chris is, is probably not at the top of the list for um, the FIM. I think he hustles them quite a lot to, uh, to look at different products that are coming into the market and can they make it a standard for FIM for racing, etc.? So um, we're able to test anything we, we anything we produce or, or anybody else's produce. We can we can test it in our lab. And um, what about what what about what is next for Liat as a whole? Obviously, like I say, product uh, product lines have grown tremendously. There's now products for everything within reason. What is a maybe a short term goal, even for you specifically in marketing, like? Is it to chase that cool tag still? I feel like that's already kind of box ticked with the 2021 gear because in my, well, in my opinion, and only my opinion, which I guess maybe means nothing, but 
the 2021 gear that FNH were wearing second half of the MXGP season was such a step on and a step forward from previous lines. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, hats off to our designer. You know, again, the, the, the designer that designs the gear is in-house. He's actually an English guy, a friend of mine. Everything is designed in-house by Leah. Um, and he's, he's every year it baffles me how they come up with new colours, new designs. It's, it's, it's fantastic. We have the categories now, um, and then we work within those categories to develop the products. So whether it be a different price point, whether it be a new model, everything has a shelf life. You know, the gear obviously changes every year. The platform of the products we develop now is right as far as the gear goes. The, the jerseys and pants, the quality is right. The longevity is, is right. The price is right. So now that, that kind of... Um, basis is correct it's just a case of colors and design but um we work within the categories now so whether it be knee braces whether it be impact pants whether it be boots whether it be helmets whether it be goggles you know there's there's always there's always something happening to develop um our plan the five-year plan moves to a you know a, there's, a, there's a five-year plan every year so if you imagine it's five six seven eight nine so uh, we've always got we've always got plenty to uh, plenty to discuss. How far ahead are you working then? Like, how what do you know? Do you know roughly what could be happening in twenty twenty four? Obviously, nothing would be set in stone. But do you have a kind of a brief idea of where um, the company is going for that year, or even beyond that? So, uh, yeah, twenty twenty three and twenty four. I'm fairly fairly au fait with what's happening there. Twenty three colours, for argument's sake. Um, we've, we, we've, we've recently had meetings to discuss the colors that we're going to use for, obviously 22 is in the books, 23 colorways are chosen. So then it would be down to the design team to come up with the graphics, which we'll, we'll meet again shortly with, with the designs for the 23. Um, and then protection products. Yeah, there's, there's already stuff for 23, 24 and 25 actually. And uh, what about you personally? Are you happy at Liat? Do you want to announce your resignation live, live on air or? <laughs> How how is um the life of Dave King? <laughs> That's good. It's it's um same as everybody. I I I feel really lucky in that um I don't know how I travelled so much last year actually to be honest with you because I seem so busy. I don't know how I had the time to travel. So usually I'm I'm travelling whether it be to to meet a distributor or to to Cape Town usually three times a year for for meetings internally or whether it's MXGPs or enduros, whatever it may be. I'm usually traveling uh, quite a lot, but I haven't obviously done any in the last 12 months, so that's probably the biggest change. But I feel lucky because I, I work in an office five floors up and uh, nobody else in the building, so I can still able to, to go to work. Everyone else is basically furloughed themselves or whatever it may be, so I've, I'm just up here on my own. So I've been able to continue, and I feel, I feel pretty lucky. Um, that I'm able to do that. I know there's a lot of people worse off that have lost their jobs, etc. But I haven't um, changed my 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 workload. I should say is probably increased if anything. <laughs> so um, I feel I feel quite lucky. Um, but I am looking forward to. I'm itching to go and see some racing. If I'm honest, um, I ride myself. Just just got an enduro bike, and I haven't obviously been out on that for a long, long time. So I'm booked in for practice day in a few weeks. I'm looking forward to that, but. To be honest, I'm really looking forward to go and watch the racing. Um, it'll probably be a British before it'll be a GP, but that'll be nice just to, to go and watch the racing. 
if people are listening to this and they're um, interested or have got questions about any of the Liat line, uh, Liat products mm. specifically, like what, whether they need a 4.5 boot or a 5.5 boot or what fits mm. them, I guess they can reach out to you on social media or they can reach out to me uh, and I can pass it on to you. Like, I guess you are, you operate on an open door policy as far as that goes. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, um, obviously some, some, depending on where people live, et cetera, they, they have a you know, good relationship. We have a lot of great stockists in, in the UK as we do throughout Europe. Um, if you want to contact your local dealer, you can of course DM us on social media. Um, DMs actually go to, the states, but if it's somebody local, then it tends to get directed to me. Um, if someone's looking for, for products in a certain area, etc., then again, I can point them in the right direction or to a FICO who are the distributor in the UK. Um, but yeah, no, feel free to, to contact myself or you, Lewis. I will happily pass it on. As, <laughs> as um, I've mentioned on the MXY show, another podcast on the MXY platform now that there are multiple. Yeah. There's much more. This seems to be a normal thing in America. Uh, there are discount codes. There are easy paths to get direct answers from people of power. So I think if we can open up some of that in Europe for people, uh, I think people would appreciate it. So Yeah, I think they would. I think you're right. And hopefully yeah, sure. they, um, they found this story interesting. I'm actually quite, I don't know. I feel like maybe we need to do a part two because this has the hour and 15 minutes that my system has been recording has flown by. Okay. And I feel like there yeah. is more to talk about. But as far as part one goes, I feel like that is a good place to wrap it up unless you have anything else to add right now, anything to look out for, anything that you're itching to say? No, I don't, I don't think so. I'm just looking, like I say, I'm looking forward to getting to back to, as everybody, to some kind of normality and to watch them racing. Um, I think it will make everybody feel a bit better. And I appreciate your time. And I think, I think there's plenty more we can talk about. But I guess, I guess the, uh, the listeners will let us know if, they want a part two or not, or if it was, or they feel it was not necessary. And whether a part two with you is coming or not, Dr. Chris Liat is coming up <laughs> at some point soon. Oh, sh- yeah, but, yeah, no, no, it will for sure. Yeah. So that's we, something we to look forward to. Schedule it. Yeah, I know people would really find that useful, I'm sure. I might have to go and do a university degree in science before I talk to him to make sure that I'm not <laughs> no. like asking stupid no. questions like, how do you spell no, South Africa? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's all right. I always preempt him. Okay, so this guy, yeah, you need to be talking uh, very a plain bit English. Well, I think that uh, I think that wraps up this episode. Thanks to you, Dave King, Leah Affley, a marketing manager, for doing this. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we will be back with another show, whether it's the MX Vice show, whether it's MX Vice Post Race Podcast. Hopefully, maybe if there's a race at some point, or another one-on-one interview. Something will be coming soon. So thanks to you for doing this and thanks to everyone for listening. See ya. Thanks, Lewis.